If you flip over one page to page 10, you should find there uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, this is going to be our last, our last week in the book of Genesis. Um, we'll pick back up uh, towards the end of the summer, but this will be the end of the, uh, the section on uh, Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and next week we'll pick up in uh, Romans chapter 9. And uh, one thing I like to always remind us about the book of Genesis is uh, that it's a good news book, and which I think is particularly hard to, to accept on the heels of a passage like Genesis 34. And yet, what, the reason I keep saying that Genesis is a good news book is because it makes no attempt ever to gloss over or to minimize the reality of life as we know it, and even the darkness and um, uh, almost inexplicable darkness of the human heart. And it's into that kind of situation that God spoke first to Abraham when he said, um, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless the whole world. And the Apostle Paul calls that the good news, the gospel, which is why I keep saying that this is a good news book. And so today, when we come to chapter 35, as I said, this is the end of what we call the Isaac narrative. So we've looked at the creation through Noah and the flood, and we've looked at the Abrahamic narrative, and we are now finishing the Isaac narrative. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, we've noticed that um, Jacob is the main character of this story. And we're going to look primarily today at the first 15 verses of Genesis 35. But before we do that, I want to make three, um, I want to tell you about three signals that chapter 35 gives us that indicate this is a transition chapter, that one part of this story is going to come to a close as another part begins. And the first signal that we get in this story is that Rachel dies. Now, Rachel was Jacob's wife. She's the one that uh, Jacob saw when he arrived at his uncle Laban's house and wanted to marry and ends up marrying Leah, her older sister, as well as Rebecca or Rachel. But in this story, Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin, the last son born to Jacob. But then at the very end of this chapter, we also see that Jacob and Esau return home to their father's house, to Isaac. And Isaac dies. And both of these brothers, who earlier in the story uh, were not getting along, uh, Jacob stole Isaac, uh, Esau's birthright, and Esau wanted him dead. And here, this part of the story comes to a conclusion when Isaac dies, and these two brothers are back home, and they bury their father together. But then the question is, well, what's next? Who's going to become the main characters as the story moves forward? And interestingly, the narrator actually prepares us for that, but in in ways that I think would be hard to pick up on if we just looked at this story in in sort of uh, fragments instead of looking at the whole story. So towards the end of this chapter, There's this interesting verse, verse 22. If you have a Bible with you, you'll see it. 
Um, while Israel, or Jacob, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and, and Israel heard of it. It's this left field verse out of nowhere. Why is it there? Well, what the narrator is doing is he's be preparing us for who's going to take up the mantle or who's going to be the successor of the story after Jacob. And by including this, uh, Reuben is disqualified. He's, the narrator is telling us Reuben's not going to be the one to take up the story. And in fact, at the end of this chapter, just after verse 22, the writer here lists all of Jacob's sons in birth order. And what we find out is that Reuben, who's uh, the firstborn, he ends up, um, he's disqualified. And then we discover that Simeon and Levi, who are the next in line, they're the main instigators of Genesis 34. And what happens in that story to get back after Dinah's being raped by this son from, she from Shechem. So they're disqualified. Now, who's next in line? Well, Judah. But in a few chapters, we'll see that Judah is not a very good candidate for a successor, leaving Joseph as the next in line. And what we find out is Joseph is the main character from this point on to the end of the book of Genesis. So these are all three indicators. I just want you to see how this whole story fits together and the narrator, even as this part comes to conclusion, a new part is actually beginning. So what I want to do is I want to read to you these first 15 verses and then there are two, two points I think that this passage is making for us as we bring this part of the story to a conclusion that, that God wants us to hear uh, this morning. So feel free to follow along there in your worship folder as we read this. Verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, 
and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here are the the two points I want us to see this morning. The first one is the command of God in verses 1 through 8, and then the appearance of God in verses 9 to 15. Now first, let's look at the command of God. Where does this story begin? All right, this story begins in a place of and under a cloud of fear. If we were to flip back to the very end of chapter 34, uh, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So as we enter into chapter 35... Jacob is terrified. He has no idea what to do. Chapter 34 is a a low point, not just in the book of Genesis, but in perhaps the whole story of the Bible. It is a dark, uncomfortable, bewildering passage. And Jacob knows that there is no way out of the situation. There's nothing but trouble facing him down. And it's into into that very situation that God speaks. Verse 1 of chapter 35, God says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. God speaks into this situation a very clear command, a very clear point of direction into Jacob's life, into his family's life, that is now living under a cloud of fear and terror and most likely reprisal from all of the neighboring peoples. And God commands Jacob to worship him at Bethel, to take his family to go back to Bethel. And the reason I called this, this, the title of this sermon Full Circle is because when God calls Jacob to go back to Bethel, If you're following the story, it should take you back to chapter 28. When Jacob, in that moment, was fleeing almost certain death from his brother Esau. And he appears to Jacob at Bethel as Jacob is running and fleeing again from reprisal on his way to Laban. God appears to Jacob. All by himself. It's, remember, it's the only incident that is recorded in the story of Jacob as he leaves his home and makes this very long journey by foot to his uncle's house. And God appears to him there, and it's the place where God says to Jacob, you know the, the covenant promise that I made to Abraham and to your father? I'm making that same promise to you. And he says to Jacob, he says, I am with you. He says, and I will be with you wherever you go. And he says that I will bring you back to this land. And God says, 
I will not stop doing what I promised for you until I complete my promise. And this is the place that God has said, take your family back to this place. In this moment of bewilderment and darkness and worship me there. Now, I think just at the outset, God's command, it answers a key question that all of us face. And it's this, it's this question. What do you do when you make a mess out of your life? I think it's safe to say that for Jacob right now, his life is unraveling. Uh, his family is a disaster. There's internal conflict and turmoil. All the neighboring peoples want him dead. His life is a mess. What do you do? And I think actually Jacob and his sons give us, I think, two very familiar and common answers. The first one is Jacob's response is in verse at the end of chapter 34. He's paralyzed by fear. Very understandable response. He has no idea what to do. But then his, his sons present a different kind of response. His sons are, are the epitome of when things unravel in your life, what happens when we take matters into our own hands. Those are the two answers that this story presents us with. What do we do when we make a mess out of our lives? God's answer to that question is neither of the answers either that Jacob gives uh, or that his sons give. God's answer is very simple. God's answer is, worship me. Notice his answer very at the first is not, let me help you fix this. Let me tell you how to make it all go away. God's answer, the very first thing God speaks into this family's life that is now shrouded in fear and terror is come and worship me. So what does Jacob do? Worship begins with repentance. He says to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments so that we may go up and worship God at Bethel and I I may build this altar. And so in verse 4, all of his family, they, they give to Jacob these foreign gods and their earrings and their garments. What, what's going on here? Well, first of all, what we see happening here is, in all likelihood, Jacob's sons and, and, and servants and his whole household had accumulated uh, actual idols of some kind, whether they be from the Shechemites or from other uh, people groups that they encountered on their way back home from uh, his uncle Laban's house. The garments and the earrings are most likely the, the, the plunder from their battle with Shechem. So what you see happening here, this is an illustration of what does it look like to both identify acknowledge and put away idolatry in your life. So when it says here, when, when they took off their outer garments 
and purified themselves and gave to Jacob these, these idols and gave to them the rings that were in their ears. What that is, that is an illustration of conviction of sin. It is the acknowledgement of what idolatry really is in the Bible. Idolatry in the Bible can be summarized as building your life on anything other than God. What's it look like to dismantle idolatry in your life? What it looks like is to take it off, metaphorically speaking, to put it away, to turn from those idols, whatever they may be, In some places in the world, they are physical figurines. In the Western world, it's often perhaps confidence in our own um, knowledge as a human race or our bank accounts uh, or our own uh, ingenuity and creativity and saying, I'm not going to continue building my life on those things anymore. I'm going to turn from those and turn back to the one true and living God. That's what's happening here when Jacob calls his household to put away these foreign gods, to change their garments, to to get rid of the rings in their ears. So worship begins, first of all, with repentance. But then, notice as we move into verse 5, as they journey back to Bethel, Terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, what's, what's happening here at this point? You know, turning back to God to worship him can be very um, exposing. It can feel very vulnerable. It can feel very threatening. Whether it be because of those outside who uh, perhaps are not in favor of what you're doing or want to get back at you for whatever reasons, or whether it be things in your own life that need to change. Um, Turning back to God to worship him is often a very uncomfortable experience. But what I want you to see here, what God does for Jacob is that he makes a way for Jacob to safely travel back to him. Now, what does that mean for you? No matter what the threats or the obstacles or the circumstances or the shame or the guilt that you may experience in your life, when God calls you back to him, he makes a way for you to make it back to him. This reminds me of a a famous quote from Augustine, one of the early church fathers who who would often say in prayer, he would say to God, command what you will and give what you command. That's what's happening here. God is commanding Jacob to return to him, and yet Jacob is terrified to actually do what God commands. Can he actually make it? And God prepares the way. He makes a way for Jacob and his family to make it back to him back to this so important place at Bethel where God had made these promises to be with him, to go with him, and to bring him back. And so then if, that, if, if God has commanded, the first is the, the, the command of God to Jacob to return to him and to worship him, what happens? 
when God's people respond to this command? Well, first of all, let's look here in verse 9 through 15. The first thing we see is that God meets us and he blesses us. Look in verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. God appeared to Jacob again and he blessed him. Now, it'd be easy to run right past this, but I want you to think about what's happening here in light of Genesis 34. Genesis 34 is a bewildering passage. It is full of darkness. It's full of injustice. It's full of revenge. It perhaps has everything in it that highlights how the human race cannot make right what we get so terribly wrong. And yet, even in light of that chapter, what we see happen here, God invites this family back to him, he appears to him, and he blesses them. It, 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 it ought to be uncomfortable that this is what God does. This is a profound picture of costly grace. That here you have this family that is a mess. And we've seen it again and again. And here in the climax of the story, God appears again and he blesses Jacob. And all in his household. And it should be, you should be asking, how can God do that? And you should even be making it personal. How can God do that to me? How can God continue to be present in my life and bless me, given who I really am? So the first thing we see here is that God appears. He meets with us in worship with his very presence. He doesn't turn his back. He actually moves toward us. And he deepens the relationship he desires to have with us. So the first thing that God does when he appears is that he meets with us. But the secondly, what does he do? He meets us in worship with a new identity. Look at verse 10. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now this should, uh, perhaps if, if, you, if you remember from chapter 32... This is when we talked about Jacob having to confront his past. He's on his way back to meet his brother Esau. For the first time, over 20 years, and the last time that Jacob had met, had seen Esau or knew of Esau, Esau wanted Jacob dead. And the night before that Jacob actually meets his brother, God appears to Jacob. And what we discover is that Jacob... He struggles with God. And then he clings to God. And he asks God to bless him. And the blessing that God gives Jacob is a new name. And he asks Jacob back in chapter 32, what's your name? And Jacob's name is really important in the story because Jacob means deceiver or liar or trickster. It In God asking for Jacob to state his name, God is getting Jacob to state who he really is. 
in order that God might declare him to be someone new. And he gives him the name Israel, which means to struggle with God, to cling to God. What what God is doing here again in giving Jacob this name again, he's reminding him of who he really is because of God's grace in his life. He, He meets with us with his presence. He gives us a new name. And when God meets us in worship, he renews his promises. Notice what he says here to Jacob. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now that ought to immediately trigger memory from the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis. The calling that God gives to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. He says the same thing to Abraham and to Isaac and he says it here to Jacob. He says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and a king shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So when God meets us in worship, he meets us with his presence, he meets us with a new identity, and here he meets us with his promises and his commitment to his plan. Here's what I want you to see. God's command that he speaks into Jacob's life in the midst of the fear and the chaos answers three questions that you and I have, whether we realize it or not, every day and especially every week when we gather here to worship. And those three questions are, God, where are you? The second one is, who am I according to who God is? declares me to be. Not according to what I think, what other people think, but according to what God thinks. And third, how do I know God hasn't given up on me? God answers for Jacob in the midst of his fear and in the terror and the mess of his family's life. He answers all those three questions for them right here in these verses. And what I want to do is I want you to think about you have even better answers to those questions than Jacob did. Because we get to answer those questions in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We now get to answer those questions in light of the fulfillment of all these promises that God has made to Jacob. And that the rest of the story of the Bible unfolds for us. So if we were to ask those questions in light of Jesus, what kind of answers do we get? Well, first, let's look at this answer of the question, God, where are you? Perhaps that's a particularly poignant question for some of you this morning. You feel like life is unraveling. There are things that you cannot control, you cannot make sense of, and God seems distant and silent, and you're asking the God, where are you question. And here is the gospel answer to you. In John 3.16, the apostle John writes that God so loved the world that he gave his son. God appears to us. He has made his presence known in Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul and the writer of the book of Hebrews both say that Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the image of God in the flesh. If you want to know if God is present in your life, you look to Jesus. That's where God is found. And not only that, Jesus has promised not to leave you alone. Not to leave you as orphans. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But then where does Jesus go? He ascends to heaven after his resurrection. So how is he still with us? He says later in chapter 14 in the book of John, he says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus will not leave you alone. And at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus confirms that commitment and that promise when he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. So if you're asking that question, God, where are you? The gospel's answer to that question is, I am where Jesus is. And all the promises I have made that I will be with you, I will not leave you, I will never forsake you. But what about who am I according to how God sees me? Well, when we look in light of what does it mean to put your trust in Jesus? That is to abandon all trust in yourself and to place all your trust and confidence in him and what he had to do for you. How does God now see you? Well, Paul tells us that he sees you as righteous in his sight. In other words, he sees you as he sees Jesus. And that is true. No matter what kinds of weakness and sin and failure that still persists in your life. To be a Christian means that you are seen, you are declared righteous before God. But he also sees you as one who is now free from sin. Everything in your life that weighs you down and trips you up may feel like it has power over you. But the way that God now sees you and the good news of the gospel is that's actually not true. In Jesus there is freedom. But what about the third question? How do I know God won't give up on me. Well, in the the first chapter in the book of Philippians, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, all of these questions, God, where are you? Who am I really? And how do I know God won't give up on me? Find their answer in Jesus. That's what the story, the climax of the story in Genesis 35 wants you to see. It's where it's headed. And it's crying out for us to hear the fullness of those promises, those answers to those questions satisfied in Jesus. And the reason you can be sure those questions will be answered 
is because on the cross, the cost of this kind of worship was paid. Remember that question I asked you earlier. How can God show up and bless this family in light of all that's happened? It's because God, in his wisdom and his timing, absorbs the cost to be in relationship with us. In order to answer those questions faithfully and relentlessly and without fail until he brings you home. That's the climax of this story of Jacob's life as it points to Jesus and the good news he brings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for telling us these stories and unfolding the story of your people and both the good and the bad, but especially the ways in which you continue to weave your character and your promises and your presence into the story of their lives and our lives. And Father, where we find it hard to believe that you are present with us and that uh, you remind us of who we really are and that you will never give up on us, we ask that you would continue to weave into our lives truth as you alone can give it, that you would help us to see uh, the goodness of Jesus and the way in which you can uh, wrap your arms around us as your people because of what he has done. And we pray that that would, would change us from the inside out and that it would make us people who are profoundly joyful uh, and can rest in the peace that you give. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.